How you guys doing out there? Good? Happy Easter. <laughs> Aren't you glad we didn't have a sunrise service? 5 a.m., whatever. Hey, listen, that's great to see you here if you're doing well. Uh, that's super. If you're here for the very first time, please just relax. We have no plans to embarrass you like churches are wont to do. There's more snacks over there, tea, coffee, whatever. Get them whenever you need to. You're not going to be disturbing anybody, least of all me. Let me just start today with a uh, passage out of Luke that will kind of set the stage for our uh, chat today. Out of Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, they referring to the women, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be uh, delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Behold, they remembered his words and returning to the tomb, they, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven disciples and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let me just pray for us and get into this. Lord, what we do not know would you teach us this morning? What we do not have, would you provide for us? What we are not, would you make us? Pray that you would be blessed and glorified and honored and that we would be changed from our time in your word with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was pretty obvious that whatever happened to the body of Jesus uh, pretty clear that it was not in the tomb, right? It was empty. All the biblical accounts make this point plain, as do accounts of secular historians of the day. That missing body is one of the things we have to wrestle with uh, in considering you know, the resurrection true or false. Uh, now, the fact that by Sunday morning the tomb was empty does not in any way, shape, or form prove that Jesus was alive. It only proves that the tomb was empty. It's mere circumstantial evidence. The kind of evidence that Detective Lieutenant Columbo uh, would have managed to deal with great skill with his rumpled raincoat and his one bad eye, his just, you know, just one more thing, if you ever saw those shows. The empty tomb could have definitely been just one of those pieces of things he's going to kind of deal with, just one more thing. He's always looking to tie up loose ends, sir, as he would say. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was the sleuth, wrestling with the case. We have to be sleuths in wrestling with this whole idea of the resurrection of Christ. Now, Luke tells us that when the women went back to the disciples with this news of the empty tomb, uh, no one immediately burst into song and dance. In fact, they had not burst into song and dance. They were not expecting a Jesus to be risen. They were expecting to kind of put some spices on a dead body. They didn't throw a party. Their response was unbelief. Luke says that the message and the way it was conveyed by the women to these guys seemed to them to be nothing more than an idle tale, an old wives' tale, if you will. And I think it's worth pausing 
and acknowledging that, frankly, that is the view of most of the people in our society today. It might be yours this morning. Maybe you have said to yourself, well, Christianity, it's core, it's pretty cool. Some good ideas for living, some good uh, how we should get along with each other and treat each other. But this, uh, hmm, this resurrection thing, that's kind of what Christianity hangs on. It's, it seems to me to be kind of a little bit of a superstition. Well, guess what? If that's you this morning, you are in very good company because you fit right in with that group of women and disciples. That's what they thought too. Truth is, whatever hopes these disciples had were completely obliterated by the crucifixion. And the gospel writers paint a picture of a group of men not only expecting a a resurrection, but completely demoralized and paralyzed. On that first day of the week, they were what? Locked away in a room away from everybody, to avoid the retribution they expected from the authorities and the religious leaders for having followed Christ. And we keep following the stories. There's something else besides an empty tomb that we have to kind of wrestle with. Something else demands an explanation, an an extra little bit of a Lieutenant Columbo. How do we account for the dramatic change we see in these same disciples, these same women, just weeks later, when their grief appeared to be replaced by joy, where their lack of faith was replaced by excitement, their skepticism replaced by a forceful proclamation of this risen Christ. Now, if that's of interest to you, you can read the first few chapters in the book of Acts, which kind of tells the story of the early church. But we're told in that passage, like, I think it's Acts chapter 3, 2 or 3, Peter, <laughs> the scared guy, guy that denies Christ three times in Jesus' trial, he stands before a bunch of people many of whom were the folks that actually put Christ to death and could put him to death. And he says this, Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested to by miracles, as you yourselves know, they saw his miracles, and he was put to death by cruel men, among whom you are. (laughs) Not a way to start a good, get everybody on your side, right? Who was buried, as you yourselves know, they all knew he was dead and buried. This Jesus, he says, God has raised him up. So if you want to give serious consideration to this resurrection thing, then those two issues are kind of primary, in the empty tomb and the fact that this dramatic, unexplainable, if it wasn't for a resurrection, kind of change in the followers of Christ. Now, we've got to be fair if we're going to do this investigation. We've got to say that if you're looking for an explanation to disprove the resurrection, man, plenty of them are out there. Actually, I don't think they've changed a lot in my lifetime. Uh, I'll leave aside many of the kind of peculiar, weird ones, like... Uh, uh, this one. Uh, the women did, the problem was that they went to the wrong tomb. The women just did not know their way around well enough, and so they went to the wrong tomb. And that seems to be rather disingenuous. You know, women are stupid, they don't know. Well, Peter was too if he went to the wrong tomb. They all went to the wrong tomb. I think that's an insult to everybody's intelligence. Women are not that stupid. Uh, the men are the stupid ones, not the women, right? So we'll leave aside the silly ones. But here are the primary ones. Well, Jesus was never really dead. If you are a Muslim here this morning, you believe that. He did not die. Uh, Secondly, the the disciples came and ripped the body off. They stole the body. The disciples actually maybe fabricated the entire thing of this resurrection, or the body was stolen by the Jewish authorities. They're all out there for us to kind of ponder. And the the genuine person who's interested in kind of, you know, know, excavating the the evidence and the truth and the issues and all the, the objections here and there, you got to ask yourselves uh, those, those questions. You know, could those things have really happened? Do these explanations give justice to the facts as presented? And I suggest that at the end of that investigation, that individual also needs to be prepared to ask this question and answer it. Hey, what if it's true? What, what, what if it's true? 
You see, when I read the Bible, maybe when you read the Bible, and I know when C.S. Lewis read the Bible, it does not come across as mythology. You and I are probably not mythology experts. We're probably not English professors, but C.S. Lewis was. And he says in a book that he wrote that he had, as an English professor, spent his entire career dealing with mythology and legends. And he says, look, I, I know all about mythology. I know what it sounds like. I know what it reads like. He says, when I began to read the New Testament, it doesn't come across to me like mythology at all. It wasn't written in that kind of framework or that kind of phraseology. It's very categorical. These things actually happen in real time with real people in our day and age. Listen to Paul as he opens up his classic test, uh, uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. And he's talking about this. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It wasn't some goofy thing. It was predicted in the Old Testament. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Oh, also predicted. That he appeared to Cephas, the Greek word for Peter, then to the twelve, the other disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can check it out. You can check them out. You can go talk to them, although some have died. Then he appeared also to James, and then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul goes on to the rest of that chapter to drive home the point that Jesus Christ and his resurrection is a total game changer. That's what he says. Because if he's not alive then your and I hopes for forgiveness is totally bogus. Our hope for eternity, totally made up. He's making the point, you see, resurrection is not something that's just tacked on neatly to the end of Christianity uh, that really is just about morality and ethics and how we should be nice to each other. He's claiming this whole resurrection thing wasn't just a few crazies who brought it up. No, in Paul's eyes, the foundation of the resurrection is an actual fact. It's at the very heart and center of Christianity itself. Without the resurrection, Christianity crumbles like a deck chair that's been broken. Without the resurrection, Christianity really isn't even Christianity. I'm glad we have this little video of uh, Jeff Williams, the astronaut, pilot, engineer, chemist, all that good stuff. He's done all kinds of weird and crazy brave things to make sure that you and I can fly in relative safety. Uh, but you're going to have to conclude, if you're a skeptic, that his, his space helmet was just on a little too tight during that flight and that somehow his, his brain isn't functioning properly, right? Because the inference out there in the public domain is that reason and faith just don't kind of go together. They're incompatible. That the Bible is calling for people to just have blind faith. Stop thinking, just start believing. And blind faith does exist, but I don't think, as my read of Scripture tells me, that the Christianity or the New Testament is actually demanding that of us. The New Testament actually asks us, as it unfolds, to think. It asks us to consider. It asks us to reason together and to think. That's maybe the big problem, right? Thinking. Uh, Wall Street Journal in December 2015 had an article. A journalist wrote this. We are awash in media-generated emotion. How do you feel has totally replaced the question of what actually happened here? as the question reporters ask. I think he's kind of right. They rush to the scene, and they really don't talk about that much about what happened here. They want to know the emotional story. How do you feel about whatever happened that we're not going to talk about? Even in golf tournaments, have you noticed in recent times, one guy, as soon as he gets to look like he's maybe he's ahead or he looks like he's going to win the tournament, music changes, out come the sob stories. Oh, he's got a grandpa. Grandpa had a stroke. He's not doing very well. Isn't that what happened anytime? Anybody know Billy Hurley? Billy Hurley III, 
good friend of mine. Anytime he does well at a golf tournament, the entire tournament is about the fact his dad committed suicide. He won a tournament last year. I watched all four days of that just to kind of, I wanted to support him. Every single episode was about his feelings and how he could play golf so well with all those feelings running amok. But that is not the Christianity that the Bible talks about. It's not the New Testament. The New Testament asks us to think deeply so that that, when, what, so that, that which we actually end up believing is based on that about which we have thought deeply. So let's go back to these explanations as to why resurrection didn't happen and think. Theory number one, Jesus never really died. It's out there. He was in a tomb, kind of, you know, passed out. Maybe he got woke up by an earthquake because history records there was an earthquake about that time. He gets up, manages to get out of the tomb, finds a doctor, goes on with his life. Everything's cool. How, how, how does that strike you? How much faith do you have to believe to have to believe that? I think quite a lot. See, the, the big elephant in the room on this one, do you think the Roman soldiers who are practitioners of execution, that was their craft and trade, that they would know the difference between someone fainting and someone passing out and someone actually dying? But anyone they had set out to do what they did and they knew when they accomplished it. That's why the gospel record says that when the soldiers came to the body of Christ, having broken the bones and the legs of the other two thieves who were still alive, they didn't do that with Christ. Why? He was already dead in their estimation. Well, to make the point, they said, well, let's just test it. They plunged a spear into his heart sack. I don't know how many people survived that, but maybe you think he did. Anyway, out comes serum and blood mix, uh, uh, separated. Proof to them that he was actually dead. Frankly, if that doesn't convince you, how about the record in John's Gospel where Nicodemus shows up in the tomb of Jesus at night carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing 75 pounds. So he takes the body of Jesus and he binds it, wraps it head to toe, linen cloths, linen cloth, and uh, all the spices completely covers the body as was the burial custom of the Jews at the time. What do you think the chances are of somebody coming into your bedroom while you're sleeping, wrapping you from head to toe, covering you, smothering you with 75 pounds of spices, and you end up as anything other than dead? Think about it. Well, maybe Jesus' disciples stole them. Well, what motivated them? What motivated them to steal them? I mean, we already know that they didn't believe he was going to rise. They had no expectation of that. Nobody that went to the tomb expected that. They weren't sitting at the tomb on the third day waiting for it to happen. They were all in hiding, knowing it wouldn't. Actually, we find out that that particular story is a lie invented by the Jewish leaders. They told the soldiers, hey, we will give you some dough if you say that his disciples came and stole the body. So this theory demands that we know that the disciples knew that Jesus was dead and that they stole him and then presumably went and hit him someplace. And then they went out and fabricated a story that got them all slaughtered. Think about it. Does that make sense? You go, well, Dwayne, Dwayne, okay. There are martyrs. We see martyrs all over the place. ISIS, everybody else, religious fanatics. These guys maybe were just fanatics. Well, yeah, okay, okay. There are religious fanatics out there running around. They were willing to die for a cause, what? They believe in. None of them are willing to die for a cause they don't believe in, that they know is fabrication. Disciples would have been in this theory, in a, position, in a position to know that this was a fabrication. And that's the big difference. We're being asked to believe that they knew it was a lie, and then on that basis of that lie, they went out to be martyred, and not one of them broke. 
I think you're sensible people. Think about it. Well, maybe his body was stolen by the Jews. One, why should they steal it? And if they stole it, why did they not just produce it on day four when the rumors started? Okay, you can say he's risen. Here's a body. Oh, okay. End of story. <laughs> okay, you might say, well, Dwayne, Dwayne, all of the evidence you're presenting, much of it is actually from the New Testament. And if you're thinking that, I'm going, I'm glad you're thinking that because you're thinking. The New Testament is, in fact, part of the evidentiary base we have to consider. But I'm going to ask you this question. There were a lot of other messiahs around during this period of time. I mean, because it, it, people kind of knew that the Messiah was supposed to show up based on the prophecies and Daniel. All kinds of people saying all kinds of things, claiming to be the Messiah at that point in history. How many other New Testaments do we have about them? I mean, there's our 25 New Testaments written about these guys. I think, I think the answer is no. No, the answer is no, there's not. So why would this one have been written? Why would they take the trouble to write this stuff down about a total goofball? Like the other goofballs. See, in Jesus' case, he had made these exaggerated claims that if he didn't rise from the dead, everything he said was basically bogus. And his promises could not have been true if he didn't rise. He was dead, buried in a tomb, and everything came to a crashing halt. Right? If he doesn't rise, he's just another dead wannabe. No reason to write anything down about that guy. The reason they wrote is something happened. I don't think that we can believe the followers got together and said, well, let's do this. Let's just make the resurrection up, even though we know from history, their own writings, that they didn't think it was going to happen. Let's, let's, let's make it up, write it down, so everybody will believe it happened. And somehow, the con worked on hundreds of people. I, I'm not prepared for that. I don't think you are. You're thinking human beings. There's not a page in the New Testament that is written that lacks absolute conviction that Jesus Christ was dead, buried, and rose from the dead. They picked up their pens to write. Not to invent a reason, Jesus, but because they had met him. Again, it comes in such categorical terms. John writes about Jesus Christ in his letter, 1 John. Here's what he says. Referring to Christ. That which was from the beginning. He knew he was God. He's with God. He became a, became a man. Came down on earth as a, God, as a human being. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard. We've talked to this guy. We've seen him with our eyes, that which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning this word of life, dead, now alive. The life was made manifest, we've seen it, testified to it, proclaimed to, to this eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is, oh, notice the verb, notice the tense, present tense, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Not past tense, is, now. So categorical, there's no really other way around it. It's either fact or it's fiction. And John writes in his gospel that Jesus did so many other things that he didn't write down. He just wrote down the things that would help people be persuaded that Jesus Christ was, in fact, who he said he was. Son of God, come to save mankind. And that by believing that, would have life everlasting in his name. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a progression to a faith in Christ. You consider who Jesus is, you consider what he's done, you consider what he's said, you consider how he's risen from the dead, and then you make up, you make your call. You make your call. Here's the evidence. Sift through the evidence. Think. People think. The, now, the evidence might provide a sufficient reason for us to trust Christ, but it's not going to compel belief, okay? Evidence is not going to compel your belief in Christ. 
If evidence compelled belief, nobody would smoke. I mean, if it's just up to evidence, nobody on earth would smoke. Evidence does not in and of itself compel you to believe. The evidence can only give you a sufficient basis for consideration. Belief comes when you say, okay, I've considered all the options, all of the theories, all of the options. Okay, and now I conclude, okay, this makes more sense than anything else I've tried. And then in believing, you discover life in his name. Now, here's the question. What if it's all true? What if it's all true? See, because the gospel is not just about ideas. It's about God acting in history. It's actually far more immense than simply ideas. Not a story about a carpenter from Galilee who went around with a few ideas. He was God incarnate in this individual. And God invaded time and space through this man who was also totally man, totally God. And in doing so, he was fulfilling a specific purpose and promise. Take a broken world and the broken people in it and provide a way for them to be fixed so that men and women and kids might know what it is to be loved by God, to love God in response, to live life fully and forever. That's why it says very straightforwardly in the scriptures, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised. I will claim to you that Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are all part of one big act that God did. All of them are indivisible, but they're all together one big act on, of God on our behalf. If you are a Christian here today, you believe in a risen Christ, or you don't believe anything. But a risen Lord you believe in is the Jesus who died a death for your sins. Paul tells us in Romans 4 that his, by his death and resurrection, Jesus has achieved salvation for all who trust in him. Important. He's not achieved salvation for everybody who says, well, I, I, I kind of think there was a guy named Jesus. Not that guy. He's not achieved salvation for all those who say, I, I, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a really cool passage of Scripture. It's a really good document. We ought, we ought to live that way. He's not achieved salvation for those who say, you know, I'm going to try my best to turn my life around and do good. He's achieved salvation for those who would surrender their lives to him and trust him with it. I, I'm emphasizing that point because I've got to ask. Have you ever come to that point of trusting in Jesus Christ with your life? Ever come to a place where you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life? In the words of the old song, we don't do a lot of hymns, but there's a song that says, he did not come to judge the world, at least the first time he came. He did not come to blame. He did not come only to seek. It was to save he came. Have you ever come to him? and said, I know the world's a mess, but I kind of get it now that I am too <laughs> because of my sins. Ever said to him, you are the only one, Jesus, who can take my sins and forgive me and pay the price because the price is a death penalty. You're the only one who could break the bondage I have in sin in my life. The only one who could bring me into the presence of God without him crushing me. You're the only one who can enable me to be truly alive. You might be saying, well, Dwayne, I, I like that a lot. I like the sound of a lot of that, but that sin thing, I really don't like that. I, I get it. We don't like to focus on that part of us, do we? I mean, I would not want my sins displayed for you over the screen. Maybe over the last week. I, I don't think they'd fit. <laughs> maybe yesterday, maybe just this morning, maybe they'd fit. Who'd want to put their sins up there for all of us to see? But it's our sin that has separated us from a holy God. And those sins have to be dealt with one way or the other. 
Jesus can deal with them or you and I can pay the piper. And that's why so many people try, I think, to be their own handyman because they just don't want to have to confront that and think that they're that bad. Some people try to deal with it by, by way of comparison. I know I'm not perfect. I'm a lot better than she is. <laughs> or we just do a cover-up, a snow job. We try to make everybody think we're better than we are. We don't have any problems. We're good. We're a good person. We're, we're, overall, I'm good. Or we say, you know, really, it doesn't really matter. I mean, everybody's a mess. Everybody does stuff. Everybody's, it's, it's, it's going to be the good outweighing the bad, and I'm pretty good. I'm not Hitler. But sin is still there. Those things don't resolve the issue. And we've all participated in it. And we are all, as it turns out, really terrible handymen when it comes to the sin issue. Or we can bow and confess them and plead for mercy. To acknowledge that Christ came, acknowledge that he died for his sins because he never sinned, that there's no other way for us to be good enough to get there because we, no matter what we do from here on out, if you live perfectly from here on out, you still got yesterday to pay for. Because the perfection is the key. Perfection is the requirement. We needed somebody to come and open the door and let us in. And the Bible is very straightforward on this. Paul said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, notice Lord, you look at what that means. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's the master. You are at his beck and call. You've got to trust him with your life. You would not do that if you don't know that he loves you. If you believe in your heart that he's got to raise him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a conviction of heart, confession of your sin, and I've got to tell you, what happens after that Jesus is Lord part is transformation. And you go, man, it just can't be that simple. It can't be that straightforward. Well, yeah, no. It's, this is not a message of easy beliefism because belief comes at a great cost. He died for you, but you die to become part of him. That's the significance of the death of Christ. And, and it's, a, it's a little bit of a mystery how this connection you might have with Christ happens. I mean, if I was a good salesman, if I was really persuasive, had a halfway decent product, and I'd give you a great deal, maybe I could sell you some stuff. But I don't think there's anything I can do to convince you, to persuade you, to compel you to trust Christ. I, I think, if you think about how it happens, it's kind of like, like this. Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, begins to call you. He begins to call you, begins to operate in your life, begins to woo you, he begins to make himself be known to you. Uh, best way I can think to kind of get this across to you is maybe you had the same experience I had when you were little kids and you had to get up and go to school early and your parents would have to call you to get you up. You know, they wake you up. And, and when they first started calling you, maybe you were so sound asleep you, you didn't actually know that it was them. You just kind of, maybe you incorporated their voices into your dreams. But, but slowly, over, as you begin to come to, you kind of, re- oh, oh, they're, 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 calling, they're calling me. They're not just, it's not just noise in the background. They're calling me, Dwayne, time to get up. Time to get for school. Or as my dad would say, rise and shine. Rise and shine. Right? Remember the story about the uh, little girl in the Bible who died and Jesus shows up? And he goes into the room where she's laying dead on the, on the sofa or couch or bed or whatever it is. And he, and, he, and he kneels down to her. And everybody's watching. And he says, little girl, wake up. And when the people heard this, they went apoplectic. They just laughed. They hooted. They howled. They said, this guy is crazy. What a goofy thing to say. Don't, doesn't he know she's dead? But she woke up. Listen, if you are a Christian this morning, that is what happened to you.
the Spirit of God call, starts to call. It may be unsettling at first. Maybe you don't recognize what it is. But maybe you're here today and you go, I don't even know how I got here this morning. I just felt led here. I just felt drawn. I don't even know what drew me. I would never come except for Easter, but here I am. All of a sudden, boom, the word gets explained. The word gets, becomes clearer. I mean, in a way that's almost maybe unexplainable to you, it becomes in focus. And you kind of realize, oh, wait a minute. It's not just noise anymore. He's actually talking to me. He's, he's calling me. He loves me. He died for me. He, he wants me. What if it's all true? C.S. Lewis described his first visit to Oxford. I think I got a picture of it up here for you. Kind of stunning, huh? He knew of its architecture. He knew of its beauty. He said he came out of the railway station and mistakenly turned the wrong direction on the street. He's walking down the street a couple of blocks, and he goes, man, this is Oxford's thing. It's, it's pretty sucky. <laughs> it's not nearly as impressive as I thought it was going to be. He finally realized, oh, I'm going in the wrong direction. And he turns around. And there it is, in all of its glory and radiance. And he described this as a metaphor of his life. He said, I concluded that this whole Christianity thing was just a bunch of baloney, just a bunch of hooey. I realized I was walking in the wrong direction. So I stopped, and I turned around, and I saw Jesus Christ, more impressive than Oxford, that everything that God had provided for me was in Christ. What if it's true? Well, we have a story to tell for Christians. We have a story to tell our desperately sick world. It's a messed up world. Would anybody disagree with that? Our world is broken. Young people growing up in America with no sense of origin. They have no idea where they came from. They're merely a collection of molecules held together some way. They have no noble destiny towards which they move. No, pay, no path to take them through the history of their lives. The story of Jesus is largely ignored. It's therefore the privilege and responsibility of those of us who are Christians to get out into that world, into education, into business, into whatever, into journalism, into law, the totality of life, and make the reality of the fact that this story is true, that God has actually come to save us. The crowning part of the whole thing is the resurrection. When Paul was talking to the bunch of people in Athens, the uh, smartest guys in the world at that time, uh, that whole conversation is recorded for us in Luke chapter 17. And he says, you know what, before Jesus, uh, God was kind of patient. He overlooked the ignorance of people. But now that Christ has come, now that Christ has died, now that Christ has come up from the grave, God commands people everywhere to repent, turn around, acknowledge their sin, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world by a man, Jesus Christ, he has appointed and of this, he's given us assurance. You know what the assurance was? The resurrection. So the question, how do we know that Jesus' sacrifice for us was sufficient? Paul's answer, resurrection. How do we know that God's going to have the final word? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And when the Athenians heard Paul's conversation, most of them totally went berserk. They just mocked him. What is this hooey? What is this claptrap? You take us through this entire thing and it ends with this raising for the dead crap? You've got to be kidding me. Some of them said, uh, that's interesting. Um, maybe we'll talk to you again about this another time. Maybe we'll come back next Easter if we're still alive. Maybe hear another thing on this. But a few, a few, it says, 
believed. So the smartest guy, the, probably the best preacher ever, does this incredible, masterful message, and most people blow it off. Is that not the response in Falls Church, in Arlington, in Annandale, in Fairfax, in Alexandria, in Nova? Some of you could walk out of here and say the same thing. When they heard about the resurrection, they said, no thanks. Or you know what? We'll come again next year. But maybe a few are going to be those who believe. Jackie and I, a uh, little story. Jackie and I came from a really strange little town in southern Indiana. I think every town in southern Indiana is strange. But uh, well, we, this one in particular, uh, I don't know how this happened. It's like a miracle. All the churches in town decided when we were teenagers that they were going to band together and hire an evangelist to come and do a revival. And they chose the biggest place they could find, which in every city in uh, Indiana is the high school gymnasium. Uh, we had a town of 7,500. The high school gymnasium held 8,000. <laughs> uh, I think I got a picture. That's the renovated gym, which is actually smaller than the original. But, so we're in there. Uh, I was, uh, got saved when I was 12, but Jackie's family went to a Methodist church which never heard the gospel. So we're there, sitting through about halfway through the week. We've been every night because that was the place to be in town, right? What else is going on? Um, so this guy is preaching, and he gives the gospel. And he asks anyone to come forward who might want to declare Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, you may not know Jackie that well, but uh, I would say she eschews attention. <laughs> She's not, uh, she, she would not want to be, I couldn't, the chance of her getting up here and doing anything on stage, absolute zero. She's not going to have you guys looking at her. <laughs> not that. But that night, that night, and in that gymnasium on the floor, with 8,500 people in attendance. She, told, she looked at me and she said, I'm going. I'm going. And that was that. I said, you want me to go with you? Nope. And off she marched, all 115 pounds of her. And the fact that there were 8,500 people in that room that would have normally terrified her didn't faze her a bit. But you know what? I, I noticed there were people sitting all around me, hearing the same words, in the same room, hearing the same message, and some of them were responding to, to this call of God that she heard with, what is this guy talking about? What, what, is, what is this? What is, this hey, we're we going to go out and get some food after this? That night, Jackie heard Jesus call her name. I guess the others did not. Have you heard him call your name? What if it's true? Your only option is to trust him if you're smart because you're a thinking person, right? You're not stupid. Discover that in Christ and him alone, you have everything, like C.S. Lewis said, for life, for death, and beyond.